Now, in churches that observe the liturgical calendar, uh, many do not uh, in American Protestantism, but uh, in the last uh, 2,000 years, a large number of Christians have been in churches that observe the liturgical calendar, and particularly the celebrations of Advent, Lent, uh, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter, and Pentecost. In churches that observe the liturgical calendar, it has been the tradition that the subjects for preaching in Advent, the Sundays uh, uh, leading up uh, to uh, Christmas, are the comings of the Lord. Advent, of course, means coming. But uh, for preaching, the two comings of the Lord, his first coming and again his second. I've chosen a text for this Christmas Sunday morning that permits us to consider the two of them together. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Ephrathah is the district in Judea in which Bethlehem was located. Bethlehem, as the birthplace of the coming ruler, signifies two things. First, his royalty, because it was, of course, the family house or family home of David and also his humble origin. It wasn't Jerusalem, the capital in which he would be born, but the little village a few miles south, Bethlehem. From a tiny village would come the ruler of all the earth. Because Jesus fulfilled this verse in his birth in Bethlehem, this little village, so insignificant among the cities of Canaan that it is not even mentioned in Joshua's survey of the cities of Canaan or even in Micah's list, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, of Judah's strongholds, now is one of the most, uh, most famous and oft-visited places in the world. Now, this line, from of old, from ancient times, is uh, somewhat hard to know what to do with. It has long been taken as a prophecy that the coming Messiah would have existed long before his appearing, that is, that the eternal God, the Son, only became a man, only began to be a man when his uh, human nature was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He had been God long before. But it's also possible to take the same Hebrew words to refer not to the eternal past, but simply to the distant past, in this case, to the time of David. In that case, the sense would be that this coming ruler would not come from the decadent family of Judah's royal house in Micah's day, but would be a true spiritual descendant of Israel's greatest and ideal king, David himself. That is, this Messiah would represent a new beginning, pure, uncorrupted royal blood in his veins. The Hebrew permits either interpretation, but Professor Waltke, for example, inclines to the view that it's not the eternity of God the Son that is in view in the context, but the integrity of his descent from the household of David. That would make the last four lines of verse 2 the equivalent of Isaiah's prophecy. Remember, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries, were prophesying at the same time. Uh, equivalent to Isaiah's prophecy that a shoot would come up from the stump of Jesse, uh, Isaiah 11.1. 1. To take it the other way as a reference to the eternal past of God the Son, 
would make it the equivalent of Isaiah's prophecy that the child to be born would be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. She who is in labor is probably not a reference to Mary, but to the people of God, the daughter of Zion, as across the page in chapter 4, verse 10, either as a reference to the fact that the Messiah will come from the godly line of the covenant community, that God will use the remnant as the instrument through which to fulfill this promise, or as a reference to the fact that Zion still must suffer first and for a while before her promised king will come uh, to her. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Nimrod is another name for Babylon, and at this point Assyria had conquered Babylon. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. Heavenly Father, by the great spirit through whom the prophet long ago wrote these prophetic words, now instruct us from them and make us to look for the coming of this king as the faithful did in ancient days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What difference did the coming of the Lord Jesus make for believers in the world? I don't mean what did Christ accomplish when he came. There should be no doubt about that. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He came born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, its wrath and its curse. He came to save his people from their sins. He came that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. But the salvation which he purchased, which he accomplished for his people, was the possession already of those who believed in him before he came. God, who stands above time, is able to transmit the virtue of Christ's death and righteousness and resurrection, both backward and forward in time. Abraham, Moses, David were forgiven their sins through the suffering, death, and righteousness of Jesus Christ long before he came into the world to suffer and die. He was, in terms of the virtue, the power, the effect of his saving work in the world, the scripture says, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So we might say about every other blessing that his death and resurrection purchased for his people. The new birth, a place among the children of God, fellowship with the Heavenly Father, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the hope of everlasting life. The saints who lived before the incarnation knew all of these things and experienced all of these things and possessed all of these things just as we do, even if they didn't know how to describe them in exactly the same terms we use today. Though Jesus obeyed, suffered, and died in the middle of human history, 
The salvation he bought with his blood and righteousness was available to believers from the beginning of human history. As the author of Hebrews says, for example, the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ was proclaimed to Israel in the wilderness a millennium and a half before Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary. So what difference for the believer did the coming of Jesus Christ make? I'm speaking of the chronological development of the life of God's people in the world. Is there something that we who believe in Christ today enjoy that believers in the ancient epoch before the incarnation did not? Is there some advantage to us because we live on this side of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection? Is there some distinct advantage that we have because his work lies behind us instead of lying ahead of us as it did for those who lived before his coming into the world. Well, it has long been supposed by many Christians that the New Testament enumerates one or another such advantage, one higher status or station with, uh, that belongs to believers in Christ today in comparison with believers who lived and died before Jesus Christ came into the world. The problem is that the Bible never actually says this says any such thing, and the efforts to make it say that Christians today live on some higher plane than believers did in the ancient epoch always comes to grief in the face of the New Testament's own words and the facts of history. For example, a sharp controversy among Reformed theologians in the 17th century was provoked by the claim of one of them, a man named Coxius, that believers in the ancient epoch the days of Abraham, Moses, and David, had only an incomplete and provisional forgiveness of their sins, that their sins could not be completely forgiven and their consciences completely cleared until Jesus Christ had come into the world and suffered and died for those sins and been raised to life again. But other theologians wisely pointed out that that's hardly what Paul says. He uses Abraham and David as his chief examples of how sinners can be justified by faith, how their guilt can be completely swept away through faith in Jesus Christ. Coxius' argument was based entirely on a mistranslation of a single word in Romans chapter 3. And his theory quickly went to that place reserved for the dumbest ideas of Christian theologians, namely graduate schools. Fact is, most of the Bible's grandest statements of the complete forgiveness that is ours through the grace of God and the death of Jesus Christ come from the scriptures of the ancient epoch before Christ's incarnation. It's there that we read of our sins being cast behind God's back, of them being buried in the deepest sea, of them being separated from us as far as the east is from the west, of God's remembering them no, no more, of his trampling them under his feet. And it's there in the Psalms especially that we read the most beautiful and conscience-soothing expressions of gratitude to God for his mercy to sinners, for his forgiveness of the unworthy and his justification of the ungodly. The righteousness of Christ was covering sins long before he made that righteousness during the days of his flesh. Others have sought to argue that the difference that Christ coming into the world has made is the fuller, richer ministry of the Holy Spirit, who comes in Christ's name to indwell his people. 
Well, it is certainly true that Christians have the Holy Spirit as a gift that Jesus Christ purchased for them. But like the forgiveness of sins, this gift too had long before been given in Christ's name and in anticipation of his work to the saints of God. The Old Testament speaks of the Spirit of God within the people of God, and the New Testament never once anywhere suggests that Christians now have the Holy Spirit within them in some different measure or greater measure than was enjoyed by the saints of the ancient epoch. The only difference the New Testament draws attention to is the new equipment of the church for witness to the world. Because the Spirit comes at Pentecost, out of our bellies shall flow rivers of living water to the nations, to the peoples, to the tribes, to the tongues of this world. Nothing is said about the Spirit's ministry within us or the greater richness of that ministry to us. No doubt the Spirit is at work more widely in the world as he draws the church out of every tongue and tribe and nation on the face of this earth. But his ministry in individual lives is never said to be different now than it was then. Nor can it be shown from Scripture or church history that we have, that the church has the Spirit in some different measure than the Spirit was given to God's people before. Well, is there a difference between now and then? Do we have an advantage that the believers of the ancient epoch did not? Does the Bible ever draw attention to any such development? Well, yes, I think it does. And we have it before us here in this famous prophecy of the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. I want you to look carefully at these verses as I uh, summarize them for you, one after another. Micah's oracle or revelation begins somewhat oddly, we might think. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. But actually, it makes perfect sense in the historical setting. This prophecy is called forth by the events of A.D. 7, or I'm sorry, 701 B.C., 701 years before Christ, when the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib invaded Judah and laid siege to Jerusalem. In fact, by the time he had laid siege to Jerusalem, he had destroyed and captured all the other fortified cities of Judah, Jerusalem the only exception. The historical setting is confirmed not only by the rest of the book of Micah and what we know about the history of Hezekiah the king, but as well by verses 5 and 6. Hezekiah was the king of Judah in those days, and Micah and Isaiah were the Lord's prophets. Hezekiah is the one who will be struck on the cheek in the ancient world a sign of public humiliation. Hezekiah had been and would be humiliated, shown up for what he was an insignificant client king of a minor principality on the edge of the great empire of Assyria. He and his tiny army would be bottled up in Jerusalem by the enormous army of Sennacherib, the Assyrian emperor, and it was only a matter of time before the city would fall to this vastly superior force. But now in verse 2, the mood changes completely. From Judah's present humiliation and defeat, we move to a future day and the birth of a great king, a true descendant of David, and under the rule of this titan, Israel's fortunes will change dramatically and those of the world with her. Verse 3 warns that this Messiah, this descendant of David, will not come immediately. 
There will be a delay and that delay will be difficult for the people of God. Israel will be abandoned. From this vantage point, it's easy to see all that was meant by those few words. The decline of Judah through most of the next century. The Babylonian exile. The sorry condition of the nation in the years following the return of the exiles from Babylon. The oppression of Judea under the Greeks and then under the Romans. And of course, throughout all of this time, the gravest problem of all would be that most of the nation would not believe, would not love and serve the Lord, would not be faithful to the covenant God had made with his people. At the time of this prophecy, while Hezekiah was a good man and was attempting a reform of Israel's national life, the spiritual health of the nation as a whole was at a very low ebb. Pagan worship was common. The rich were mistreating the poor. There was a great deal of dishonesty and immorality in the national life and so on. But says Micah, when this ruler comes, the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. Return is used there with a sense of conversion. They will be turned back to God and to his covenant. That is no longer just a remnant of faithful folk. But the whole church will be in living communion with God. The prophets often speak of this time, this age of the consummation, when all shall be taught of the Lord, and no man shall have to say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, because they will all know him, from the least to the greatest. And as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy so often, when the Messiah establishes his reign in the, in the world, God's people will live in perfect peace. The whole earth will be at peace. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the infant will play near the hole of the cobra. Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 5 and 6 pose a difficulty. Most commentators, including Professor Waltke, whose, whose authority I regard as almost uh, unqualified, take these statements as a description of the Messiah's eventual rule and the peace of his people, with Micah referring to Assyria, and Babylon as representatives of all the conceivable enemies of God's kingdom because they were the enemies in the day in which Micah was preaching to his people. In other words, Assyria in these verses, 5 and 6, is all the forces of darkness and unbelief that would ever threaten the kingdom of God and which will be brought to heel by the king of kings when he finally comes and introduces his reign of peace. Now you know, of course, that the Lord did deliver Hezekiah from this particular siege of Sennacherib, the Assyrian king conducted against Jerusalem in 701 B.C. The angel of the Lord, you remember, struck down Sennacherib's army, perhaps with the bubonic plague, because the Greek historian Herodotus mentions that his army had been overrun by a plague of mice and rats. But Micah's not speaking of this in verses 5 and 6, apparently. It was, after all, only a temporary reprieve. Assyria was still in charge, Jerusalem still under its boot, and the people of God still did not return to the Lord in repentance and faith. Now, what are we to do with these six verses? Well, first, we should admit that, as with many prophecies of the Messiah's coming and his coming reign by the prophets of the ancient epoch, it is not made perfectly clear here that this coming ruler would appear in the world and then leave it again and not return.
time to consummate his kingdom and to bring in the reign of perfect peace. This phenomenon of the prophet's vision of the future, their perspective from their ancient vantage point, has often been likened to seeing a great, or to seeing at a great distance, a range of mountains on the distant horizon. From a distance, the mountains seem to be hard by one another. One long, single connected range of mountains. Only when one gets near them, and especially when one gets among them, do you realize that as a matter of fact, there is a great deal of difference between, or a great deal of distance separating the front range of mountains from the rear. From the distance, it doesn't look this way, but as a matter of fact, there is a valley between them, and the valley may be quite wide. It may even be 2,000 years wide. The perspective of the person who is still many miles away from the mountains serves to foreshorten the space between the mountains he sees in the distance. In other words, in Old Testament prophecy, one often finds the future presented as a single event or a single development, one single range of mountains which history will later show to be, in fact, a complex development that spans many thousands of years, range upon range upon range of mountains. Sometimes the prophets mix together nearer or more distant days of the Lord, as Isaiah does, for example, and it was just one of many examples in chapter 13 of his prophecy, when he prophesies not only a day in the future when Babylon would be destroyed, but as well when the entire world will be judged by God. It's as if Isaiah sees the judgment of Babylon and the judgment of the world as one single development, one single event. It's not clear that they thought any such thing, but they wrote with this perspective, foreshortening the future uh, in this way. This prophetic perspective, as it is often referred to, can well often be found in the New Testament as well. There's nothing peculiar to it in Old Testament prophecy. A classic example is the Lord's prophecy or the Lord's discourse on the future, often called the Olivet Discourse because it was while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples that he delivered this teaching in Matthew 24 and its parallels in the Gospels where he speaks in one breath of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and of his coming again at the end of the age. So from the perspective of seven centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet sees the Lord's birth and the consummation of his kingdom as one single development, one single event. Only as the years unfold do we learn that as a matter of fact, his birth would be separated from his second coming by thousands of years and the consummation at the end of history, the complete and final triumph of his kingdom and the vindication of his people and the reign of peace that Isaiah and Micah so magnificently describe would require that many things be done in the world first, especially the evangelization of the nations. In this sense, in this way then, we are in very much the same situation as the small remnant of faithful believers in Micah and Isaiah's day. They too were told to look forward to an event that lay still on the distant horizon. They were to get their hope and their encouragement from the certainty of things to come in the distant future. 
They were told that there was much that would have to be suffered and endured before the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams, before the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom in the world, and before they would be vindicated before all of mankind for the trust that they placed in God's word and in God's promise. And here we are, you and I, waiting still. The Church of Jesus Christ in our own particular age and historical moment, perhaps growing weaker as we speak. Its influence on the wane in many parts of the world. Its witness corrupted by its own disloyalty to God's world and its word and its own betrayal of God's covenant. And we ourselves must endure still, perhaps for long ages yet, for all that anyone knows. The shocks, the sorrows, the disappointments, the frustrations, the weariness, the embarrassment of being a follower of Christ in this world that has no time for his word, his promise, the expectation of his coming again, the judgment day, heaven and hell. For preaching these things, we get ourselves laughed at or silently pitied. The devil, the world, and our own flesh conspire to make our life so difficult in this world as we seek to live it for the praise and honor of our Heavenly Father and before our Redeemer, whom we love and whom we wish to serve perfectly. How heavy the going so often is. So it was for the faithful in Micah's day. And so it has often been for those who love the Lord and tremble at his word. But here is the difference between them and us. Here is our advantage. Here's the benefit that we have that they did not. The ruler was born in Bethlehem. Half of Micah's prophecy has already come true, already been fulfilled, already come to pass. We've already climbed the first range of mountains he saw from his great distance, and we're now into the valley between. And we can have for that reason the greater confidence, the deeper assurance that the full consummation of the promise of Christ's eventual reign of eternal peace can only be a matter of time. It's one thing to live as a remnant in an unwelcoming world, to hope for what is so long in coming that no one around you believes that it ever will. But it is another thing altogether to live in hope when that hope has already been demonstrated. When that hope has already been vindicated in the most staggering and undeniable and breathtaking way, angelic announcements, a virgin birth, a sinless life, miracles of such surpassing power as to demonstrate that nothing is impossible for this king. No enemy can stand in his way. Nothing can impede the progress of his kingdom. And then the cross and the empty tomb, and the ascension to the right hand, and the promise of his coming again. Oh, it's not easy to wait when the godly have already had to wait for so many centuries. But surely it must be easier for us than it was for them. Half of all that was promised them has already come to pass, and that half is sure and certain proof of the whole. Behind us, Christ crucified and risen 
and ascended to the right hand. Before us, Christ coming again and the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The former assuring us of the latter. And that is no small thing, no small advantage in a day like this, a day when the church again is under siege and Israel is once again abandoned. We look back to what has already occurred and then we look forward to the future. And with a new clarity and a sharpness of sight, we see the King of Kings standing on this earth, shepherding his flock, now just a small remnant, but a great, but then, at the end, a great host that no man could conceivably number, like the sands on the sea or the stars in the sky. If the beginning of the end was so unspeakably wonderful, what shall the end of the end be? Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Amen.